Thank you so much uh, for coming. Uh, we're going to do some housekeeping uh, to begin with. Um, so I'm Sandy Palmer. I'm a trustee of the festival. Uh, thank you to our principal funder, to Arts Council England. Uh, I should also say thank you to those of us, who, those of you who are joining us uh, online today as well. Um, okay, I guess we'll, we'll begin. So yes, thank you for coming. This is a, a, an event that um, is going to be about poetry criticism and poetry reviewing. Um, and the reason why uh, we're having this event partly is because the festival has for uh, several years now, five years, been generously supporting the Ledbury Poetry Critics Scheme. Um, and Ledbury Poetry Critics was a program that was set up five years ago by myself and Sarah Howe, um, who will introduce herself in a moment. Um, and it was in response to uh, the sense um, and sort of the sense, but also the, the data that we amassed, that was amassed by the blogger and critic Dave Coates, uh, which showed that poetry criticism by non-white uh, critics was actually uh, very, very little. And we'll give a bit more detail on that in a moment. Um, but first, I'd like to uh, invite my fellow panelists to introduce themselves. Um, morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Um, like Sandeep, I'm now one of the trustees of the festival and very delighted to be here for the first time with that hat on. Um, and uh, we together founded the Ledbury Critics Scheme and have been co-organising it since. Um, we, we now have um, a, three generations of, of fabulous critics of colour um, and Sean is one of them um, and has been doing us proud this weekend, I think you'll all agree. Um, I'm a poet and a critic myself. Um, uh, my first book was Loop of Jade, which came out in 2015, and now I'll hand you over to Loop of Jade. <laughs> <laughs> um, Loop of Jade won the T.S. Eliot Prize <laughs> we, we in 2015. Uh, <laughs> it's worth saying that um, as, we, as we go into, I'll actually introduce Kevin first before I do myself, because I just will do it that way. Um, to my left is Kevin Young. Kevin Young is a poet, essayist, children's book author, editor, curator. He's the author of 13 collections of poetry, three books of nonfiction, one children's book, as well as the editor of nine volumes of poetry. Um, Kevin's won a lot of awards. Please. <laughs> a lot of awards for poetry and for his nonfiction. His work is really amazing. He's currently the poetry editor at The New Yorker. Perfect. Um, and yes, that, Thank you. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure more will come out in this. And my name is Oluwashon Alaiwala. I am a poet, a critic, a dancer, and a choreographer. Um, in my critical roles, I mostly write poetry reviews, but I also engage in dance criticism as well. Um, and yeah, I live in London. I'm from Texas. Now I live in London. And today I'm here in Ledbury. We all are. We all are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so I'm Sandy Parmar, um, and yes, co-founder of the Ledbury Poetry Critics Scheme. I'm a poet and a critic um, and an editor of, um, like Kevin actually, of critical editions of poets' work. So Kevin's son, John Berriman, and what was the other one? Lucille Clifton. Uh, I did uh, the collected poems of Lucille Clifton. Lucille Clifton. Um, but I'm mostly focusing on modernist women writers who've been forgotten, um, and I teach at Liverpool University. So yes, um, 
And with that, just to go back to the Library Poetry Critics Scheme and the reason why we're sort of here talking about the state of criticism, what can be done, what needs to be done, how we all, perhaps our practices as well as reviewers, which I think we'll touch on too. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the, the impetus for the, for the scheme and for really thinking about the state of poetry criticism in the UK was this observation um, that was made um, by Dave Coates um, and the, the number that, um, that he came to uh, through kind of reading both poetry magazines and newspapers was that in 2015, less than 2% of poetry reviews in the UK were written by non-white critics. And thanks to the scheme and to the energy of our wonderful Ledbury critics, of which there are now 30 um, in the UK and uh, some in a sister program in Ireland and a sister program in the US now, um, that number in the UK has risen to 15% um, over the past, was it seven years? So it's really, really great. And, and a lot of that is down to the energy and, and kind of access that critics have been able to, to have. Uh, into what is a dwindling and in some ways diminishing print space for poetry reviewing in the UK. I'm sure we will talk about what that is like in the US, I hope, as well. Um, so I think just to begin kind of with the general question, really, what, you know, what do we, how do we feel about the relationship between poetry criticism as it is now um, and the kind of poetry culture and poetry market? It's a very broad and general question to all of you. And actually, you can probably tell that we're hoping this will be quite a informal sort of mm. conversation. So if you in the audience want to leap in on these questions at any point, please do raise a hand. Um, I don't know, are we at quite an embattled moment in some ways? Um, also, since um, 2015, the starting point of our statistics, we've seen the rise of a sort of culture wars narrative, haven't we? Um, but at the same time, it does feel like um, there has been a, a change of, of, of the culture in, in the UK. I, I think that the sorts of, uh, the quality of attention paid to um, the work of poet, uh, poets of colour, uh, it has deepened and improved, not invariably in all quarters, but I think that um, what we saw when the scheme started in 2015 was um, the sense that suddenly uh, there was a real upsurge um, in the number of books by poets of colour that were appearing, but that there wasn't necessarily in all quarters the sorts of um, critical intelligence and facility and background needed to read that work. Um, and I think that is changing. I mean, what has also changed is the number of, of slots um, and the, uh, well, um, I, I suppose it's been a source of sadness that things like The Guardian no longer runs their regular full-length poetry review anymore, do they? they? They still run the four-book roundup, but the space for lengthy, engaged um, uh, exfoliation of what one book of poems is doing is, 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 feels like it's dropping out of the, the public sphere. Um, I mean, at the same time, I've found myself as a, as a critter, critic and as a critter, a critic and reader, um, I, increasingly in love with the long form. Um, the, 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 as space dwindles, I, I want to be writing essays that have, you know, two, three thousand words to grapple with a poet, and that's also the sort of um, 
work I want to read, and I guess that is something that the internet has made possible in ways that uh, maybe weren't so available before. How do you, I mean, you, you can bring in a transatlantic perspective, um, both of you, Sean and, and Kevin. Yeah, I mean, I, I love what you said. I, I don't know the British scene that well, but um, in my estimation, some of what you're talking about, like um, the surge in writers of color and poets of color publishing, I think in a way happened 10, 15 years ago maybe in the States. Um, I certainly think that things like Kaveh Kanem, the group that uh, Nicole Silly, who was here yesterday um, and is going to be here a few days, um, led for a time, uh, were really crucial in, in you know, filling out the ranks, uh, which were always full in my opinion, but um, weren't always recognized. And so mm. I think some of that recognition has happened more recently. But I agree with you too that there isn't always a place for that to land critically. Um, I always think that you have to almost write some of the criticism you want to see for your own poetry, and you're, you're, especially if you're doing anthologies and doing some of that other work that I think also builds that, um, let's call it a seedbed for um, that criticism. I think that's part of the process for me. And, um, I've done anthologies. My first anthology of young black writers was in 2020. And so for me, that was really important because I was just seeing all my friends publishing these great things. Um, and um, they were getting recognized in some ways. And that was one of the points of the anthology. But the other one was that you know they weren't all in one place. And they weren't seen together in a way. And, um, you know, now in retrospect, a lot of them are, are some of the poets we think of. Natasha Trethewey, uh, Colson Whitehead, Danzy Senna, all these were poets in this anthology 22 years ago now. And for me, that kind of, maybe it's more, um, it's criticism, but it's also editing as criticism, which is mm -hmm. sort of as much what I am interested in as criticism per qua criticism. Um, and so for me, that there's that kind of combination platter of needing to see the work being published, maybe sometimes publishing the work yourself, which mm -hmm. I've had the fortune of doing as an editor uh, of books, but also The New Yorker, but then also um, having that literal critical um, edge. And I think The Long Review is, is a great place to think about that, even if it's thinking about different poets in the, in the moment, but also going deep on one particular poet. Mm. I, I, I want to ask you a question about what you just said, <laughs> or, or not ask you, I want to stay with something you just said, editing is a type of criticism. Sure. Um, and I, I think the reason I'm interested in that is because even as someone who, you know, is quite new to the critical world, you know, I've only been writing reviews or writing what I, th I don't even know if they're really reviews, I've been writing, you know, engaging with other people's work and yeah. saying what I what I think it might be offering or how I think it might be constructed. I've been doing that for about, at least in, in written form, for about a year and a half now. Maybe even a year would be a better time to consolidate that in. And I, and I guess I want to ask you about why or editing or different forms of criticism in, that don't necessarily, um, are not relegated only just to the review that says this is good or bad, but how you see yeah, or, or where, where inside the kind of umbrella of criticism, like what, what, what does editing as a type of criticism offer that is different to say than, you know, the, 
the, you know, putting something out that offers an evaluation of a piece or, you know, the kind of long essay mm. of, of a piece or the uh, foreword, like what is, how, and then what, and then how does editing as criticism, what, what is then criticism, what is the definition of criticism when we think about editing as a type of mm. criticism? Because I've never thought about it that way. I guess to me, um, good criticism is an engagement and taking it seriously and sometimes uh, it means, uh, you know, not taking it for granted. Um, but I don't think it always means taking it apart. There's a kind mm. of uh, sense that one gets um, that that's what you have to do to be, cr you have to be critical in the kind of vernacular sense of, um, as opposed to uh, what you're talking about, evaluative. I think mm. that's an interesting way to put it. And for me, um, I try to think about anthologies as inclusive, though of course um, they can feel sometimes not that way. But I think you judge an anthology by what's in it, not necessarily what's left out, though I think that's the temptation, like why isn't that in there? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, there's a, a kind of, and I prefer that with poetry especially, does it make sense to you know, take down a poet's first work? Uh, it doesn't really seem so. Um, and I think it'd be better to say, let's pay attention to this over here. Let's talk about this, and sometimes, you know, an anthology can just be everything, but I don't think that's as useful as sometimes saying, here's what I think is interesting in this particular moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of it is, is um, not predicting, but, you know, like trying to guess right, mm -hmm. but also trying to get what I like about it as a, a editor is it forces you not just to take your own taste. And I think mm -hmm. a good review doesn't do that either. Mm -hmm. You're trying to meet the work where it lives, mm -hmm. meet the reader where they live, mm -hmm. and, and sort of bring them together, mm -hmm. and sort of say, hey, this work might seem somewhat difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the key I have. Mm -hmm. And I think the cultural competency, the cultural insights that one can provide and say, hey, this is based on a thing that I, it sounds like my grandma, you know, or it sounds like this dude I knew, or it sounds like, you know, 1997, you know, mm -hmm. and, and if you weren't there, I'm gonna tell you what that's like. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the critic, the editor, the person in poetry's job is to make that bridge. Just on the point of anthologies, though, I suppose that there's a, a sense that a, an anthology has always has um, done kind of canon reevaluation. And in a sense, criticism has that function too, and it can be quite conservative you know, by nature, and sometimes quite radical, depending. But I wonder if you have a view on how, I mean, I'm thinking of a very specific instance here, which was a anthology, I think it was the Norton Anthology of American Poetry, was it, that Rita Dove did? I could be completely wrong about this, but that was an anthology that, um, for whatever reasons, had left certain people out, or had certain people, that was trying to, to capture a, a particular moment, of where um, the editor felt the canon was, um, but also to redress imbalances of the past in, in creating this very important anthology. But what was interesting about it also was the critical response um, from two very prominent uh, white critics at the time, I seem to remember, and, and I'm sure others. But how then, I mean, there is a very utopic vision we can have of anthologies and their importance and inclusion and everything, but is there the sense that Editing as criticism is, is a conservative gesture as well, and that in some ways it fits into criticism in that way of sort of retaining an idea of value and reinforcing an idea of value. Fix anthologies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, ex 
expansion of taste, I suppose, um, sort of as Kevin was saying just now. And yeah, making, a, making an argument about what um, we should be remembering and paying attention to now. Is it a conservative gesture? I suppose, in, in as much as um, it's, a, it's an act of, of gatekeeping, but it's also an act of shining a torch on the neglected. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's right that the, that the mantle of anthologist should be shared around and, um, you know, uh, that different generations remake their Nortons, you know, every, every few years um, in the same way that translations need to be remade, you know, two or three times a generation. The same is true of anthologies. Um, and hence the stupidity of the discussions that happen in um, the right-wing press in the UK every time uh, the school syllabus slightly shunts Larkin to the left, you know, um, to make space for uh, whoever it might be, Warsan Shire. Um, you know, uh, we, we, we don't need to be stupid about these, these things as the, as the sort of simplified cultural debate of, often wants, wants to be. Um, I do love this idea of, well, expansion of taste. T.S. Eliot talks famously, doesn't he, about the function of criticism being the correction of taste. Mm. Um, I, I suppose uh, I always think of that as the sort of orthodontic view of what literary criticism <laughs> is for. Um, but there's a kind of, yeah, there's like an almost punitive aspect to that word, isn't there? Correction of taste. But I like the idea of working against one's taste. I mean, um, openness, a Catholicism, a sense of um, I might personally not uh, respond viscerally to this work, but I recognize its importance. I actually more and more as a critic myself, evaluation is the thing I'm least interested in, both as a writer of reviews and as a reader of reviews, because I feel like so much of that evaluative impulse is just a, a sort of almost like a dating site match between mm. critic and, and poet. I think that it's possible to um, have very interesting sorts of engagement that don't, uh, that, that skirt around the question of personal liking. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, how do you mm. feel about that? How, 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 how much do you feel it's important to, you know, give the star rating <laughs> as a reviewer? I think what you're talking about is a criticism that isn't like, you, you're saying almost, I like this, or I don't necessarily, you're almost saying, you know, this might not be to my taste, not everyone, but I see what they're doing and I want to, it's not descriptive because that sounds uh, merely descriptive, but mm -hmm. um, perhaps it's not as orthodonture related <laughs> as you're saying. I mean, and Elliot, of course, is being disingenuous. Uh, if a poet says, look over here, definitely look over there. Um, so what he's saying is, oh, these metaphysicals, they're the perfect poets because they explain me um, in a way is that I think you know, we now can see. Um, and sort of his idea of impersonality, I think, is so such a protective notion. And so I, I guess, Maybe you're trying to admit to some of that while also writing past that and say, it isn't just I'm setting up myself, like the perfect poets are my antecedents or my colleagues or my brothers mm -hmm. and sisters, but 
Rather, um, hey, this is kind of, I wouldn't have thought I liked this, but maybe you should give this, a, especially if you're interested in these ideas which this poet is expressing. At least that's how mm. I heard you saying that. And to me, that is about value, because one of the values you're, you're talking about is let's expand our, our taste to not just talk about what I like, you know, mm -hmm. but like what might be good. Try something, eat your veggies. Sham, <laughs> mm. do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, something you said made me think about descriptive analysis and kind of, um, you know, working between dance and poetry criticism, one of the, I guess, uh, major differences is when you're writing a dance review, I would say probably 75% of it is actually you just telling the reader what happened. And then in the way you describe that, you don't have space to, you know, make, you don't have, you can, but you don't have as much space or as much leeway, I think, to make, you know, an assertion, a proof, and then a kind of evaluation or extension of that proof. You kind of have to tell people what happened because they can't see the dance or they're not going to see the dance or mm. the dance is only in town for a couple days. And so most of your review goes to you trying to find the adjectives and the verbs um, that best describe what happened. Mm. And then after that, you might, if you have the space, you might try to um, interpret what, that, what, that, what mm. those movements at that specific time meant. Um, and then after that, you might, if you have the time, you might say, this is good or bad, or this is, a tr this is achieving what it thought it was trying to do. Um, and I don't know, I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about my own reviews when I write poetry. I think I get very, I get very into how something was made. I think, you know, my, my own research as a choreographer and a poet and bridging those disciplines comes from thinking about how things are made before, you know, what they are made of. And there's something about, so I, I, I notice in my poetry reviews, there's often a lot of quotations. Um, not very many adjectives, but trying, I think this comes back to trying to let the work speak for itself often, though I think sometimes that can frustrate some editors because it feels like by putting a lot of um, proofs or a moment from the book, it feels as if you haven't actually said things about the book itself. Um, and there was something else you were saying, Sarah, that is, when you were quoting T.S. Eliot, it made me think of one of the first books of criticism and one of the lines from it, which was um, Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, where I think in the first 100 words, he says, nothing touches a work of art so lowly as, a, as, a work, as words of criticism, and then goes on to produce you know, one of the most famous works of criticism <laughs> ever. But um, I don't know, I, I guess I'm always, I'm always I, I think of that, even though he says it's, I think about, when I'm writing, I think about touching the work, and I think there's something about um, working in dance where touch is a very kind of uh, fundamental type uh, way of either creating or responding to a work, and then also with poetry, which you don't, you know, you, don't, you, you have the book, so you do touch the physical artifact in your hands. Um, but I, I think I, when I'm writing, I'm trying to touch the work with whatever hand is in my, in my poetic, or critical voice in some way, um, though that doesn't always go towards evaluation. That leaves a lot of quotes and that leaves a lot of, I tend to look at music a lot. Like music is, you know, I think, it, I don't know a lot of, it's hard for me sometimes to understand context of works, works that, you know, come from experiences completely different from mine or, but there's something about when I'm reading that, it feels like music is always the first way. And I think this also comes into my own poetic 
practice, that music is always one of the first ways I can apprehend a sense of place or a sense of uh, motivation in the work before I start thinking about whether the work is about identity or grief or um, any other sort of um, big poetic theme. I, I love that idea, um, Joan, of um, that maybe we should think about poetry criticism as being more like um, uh, uh, reviews of ephemeral forms like dance or theatre, yeah. something about capturing an experience that it might be fleeting. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I'm almost excited about reviews that, that try to do a sort of phenomenology of the experience of reading a poem mm. and reading a book and give a sense of the evolving, changing responses that you have as a reader over the first sweep through a book, the second sweep, the way that that, that might shift. And I guess that's partly a matter of liking and partly a matter of horizons of understanding expanding. But um, should we think about impersonality, the I, the positionality of the poet, how, how far does this have to be present in, in a piece? Sandeep, how do you deal with this? <laughs> you mean the, the poet, thinking about the poet and as, as someone who's in the review and, and behind the work? The, this was always a question for the scheme, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, to what extent did we expect our Editors were sort of wondering, I think, like, did, were we setting up the scheme as a stable to read poets of colour, or did we expect people to be reviewing across identity lines, across you know lines of experience and academic expertise, yeah. and yeah, and I think that I mean that emerged from uh, some reviews that I think we read at the time when the scheme began, which um, were, were very distinctly different when handling work by a poet of colour, which would really front load the life story of the poet. Um, and make that the basis for reading as opposed to the work itself and uh, an overly biographical reading. Um, and, I, and I think to an extent that has shifted, certainly in the reviews produced by Ledbury critics, because we are so hyper aware of how we're being seen and read off the page. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I, I think that is improving, but it's now turned into a different conversation, which isn't a kind of different, I guess, question from what you're asking, Sarah, but it goes back to the, the idea of value, um, which is now there's a sort of divide critically between how we read or perceive poets of color as either focusing on identity and life experience or craft, and that somehow those two things can't be in a conversation or have a relationship with each other. And it, it's a very easy way, I think, for some critics and readers to discredit a, a poet of color who is writing sometimes overtly political material or what is perceived as being overtly political, um, which is to say, well, this doesn't have craft. And what that, of course, means is it doesn't have an awareness of a very specific um, kind of aesthetic and canonized aesthetic that feels national or part of a tradition in which mm -hmm. we believe poetry should operate. Um, how do we feel about that? How is well, that this feels like a, trans a conversation yeah. that could usefully have a transatlantic perspective mm. to it as well, couldn't it? Is that the same in the States? Like, is that, does that kind of caricaturing happen there? Like, it often takes the form of a page-stage divide here still. Mm. Oh. Also. Mm. I think that's a change in the States, maybe, but um, it certainly has for me. I mean, i am uh, been writing and publishing long enough that I was sort of before that divide existed, um, before slams even. And I was recently thinking back to when I was in a thing called the Darkroom Collective, and we went to 
you know, open mics were much more the thing before slams, and then open mics sort of morphed into slams. Um, and so we, you would go to an open mic, of course, like why wouldn't you? And you had to be good enough to hold an audience's attention, why wouldn't you? Um, so those kind of concerns to me were baked in, especially in African-American poetry, the oral is not so far away. I remember having a, a let's call it a discussion, with a poet who wanted to find critics to write years later about this dark room collective. And they said, I want to find someone who's only gonna write about the poetry and not write about like context. I said, that doesn't exist mm -hmm. in African-American uh, mm -hmm. poetry or criticism. That would be a bad black critic who's like, I only write about the work and I don't think about music or dance mm -hmm. or movement or, or the context or social uh, justice, say. And so um, they looked around for someone who had nothing but poetry on their mind and couldn't find them, and then uh, realized they had to find someone who was going to write about all these things, and it's much richer uh, for such an idea. Um, I, I think there is a, it's hard for me to point to, in a, another way, a uh, African-American poet who doesn't only, who only writes poetry. Mm -hmm. They often are writing criticism, they're often writing other forms, plays, what have you. And I think that's an interesting set of skills that I think a critic has to bring. So you can't come and say, oh, they um, you know, are really bad performers but great poets or something. I mean, you have to think about how they change. Someone like Sister Sonia Sanchez, I mean, is so dynamic on and off the page and the page is meant to understand the stage and vice versa. So for me, that's kind of baked in, especially to African-American poetry. And in a good way, I think that kind of divide has, has somewhat erased. But I can see how it could evolve up that there's this notion that, oh, there's some poets who write about themselves and others who write about poetry. You know, mm. um, It seems to me to miss the point that good poets are doing all at the same time. And you know, if we take, for instance, Irish poets, who I think we can agree are great, um, are, are often writing about the self and the nation and the, the poem and mm. all those things. And so for me, that was always a good example of a kind mm. of poetry that, uh, and criticism that understood all of those connections to mm. ultimately language, which is where we live, but also um, you know, in the case of Vernaculars or Irish, English, you know, has this connection to history. Mm. It's weird to read a ahistorical criti criticism, right? Mm. One that doesn't understand that. And so to me, uh, that isn't the same as a biograph biographical mm. criticism, but you have to have that sense of the context, mm. the history, mm -hmm. and helping people understand that isn't a bad thing. And sometimes that does say, hey, by the way, there were these different experiences from the ones you might have mm. thought or see on the TV. Um, so how do you help bridge that without making people into flattened, as you yeah. say, biographical, um, you know, they went to this, so they wrote that. Yeah, but it's so hard, of course, in a poetry review to do that. And I think the more long-form criticism that, that you're sure. speaking about is, is obviously that's possible. But you know, as, as Sarah referenced, something like The Guardian now, it's you know, 200 words per, for, per poet, I think it's about 800 <laughs> review, and you really you can't say anything right. about context. Right. Um, so any, any slight evaluation um, or judgment that is made in such a short form, or even let's say the 800 word review, which almost doesn't exist in the newspapers, sure. um, you, you, any of those 
any of those ideas are already hardwired into the evaluation that's made, and they're actually less visible. So the elision there is it comes across as being a certain type of biased reading, which the, you know, the reader can't see. And this, is, I guess, leads on to another question, which is you know, who are reviews written by and who are they written for? And how has that changed and can that change? And what it actually is criticism? What's the purpose of it? Um, Maybe that's Simple different. question, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we've got 20 minutes. Let's let's just fix, you know. No, I think that's a big question. Do you want to have a go at answering? I, I absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> Sarah. No, I, I'll try. Okay. But after Sarah. No, no, no. You go, Kevin. No, no. Please. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I I hope that there is still a democratic impulse mm. at work in criticism. Um, the the idea that you would pick up your paper at the weekend and um, a really sort of uh, a window into the mind of somebody who loves and is deeply thoughtful about poetry might persuade you to go off and buy a poetry <laughs> book, even though that's something you've never done before. Right. Right? Mm. That's part of my utopian thinking. Um, and um, I mean, yeah, what, what do we think needs to happen to make everything better. <laughs> like, um, I, I suppose Sandeep and I have been wondering what the next steps should be for the Ledbury Critics Scheme. What, what, what can we aspire to fix now? Um, for us, actually, one of the best and most surprising things, it was almost inadvertent, though we should have seen it coming, effects of the scheme was that now we, we, we seem to have not only fostered a stable of critics, but they're starting to increasingly take on editorial roles. So we see our critics are now becoming the next generation of, of rev reviews editors and commissioning editors. And that's, um, that's an important shift, I think. Mm. Um, and that, that will hopefully make real change. Um. I wanted to say I don't think I'd be a good editor right now. <laughs> um, but, I, I, but this leads me to a question I, in, I guess I wanted to ask, since I know we all have creative practices um, as well, and how we situate or relay our critical practice to our creative practice is different. But when you're writing, I guess I want to ask, when you're writing a review, um, and you're, you know, you're sitting down, and I guess to what, how, are, yeah, how do you, how do you situate review writing within your creative practice? Like, how, how is, you know, what doesn't necessarily need to be in prose, but usually ends up being in prose. How, what, what kind of, I don't know, critical, creative engagement do you feel you're doing when you're, you're uh, utilizing when you're writing a review? Um, and I'll preface that by saying when I, it's very hard for me, and I don't know if this is because I'm new or because I uh, can't let things go, I, perhaps, that when I'm writing a review, I, it's very, I still feel that kind of musical, in my own writing, I'm like, this needs to sound right. This needs to come structurally in the right place. There needs to be an image here. I've noticed in the three reviews some kind of every review I start with, I always begin with the back of the book, like the back cover or the back matter, or one review I just did of uh, Vajita Moore. Um, uh, I started with her author photo on the back and as a, as a way to kind of let, and so, and that for me, I was like, oh, well, this is kind of now, like, uh, it's almost getting into kind of a poetic. So it's like uh, starting at the back and moving backwards and then going through the book. And so, um, I, yeah, I'm curious when you're, how, 
I don't know, I don't think lofty is the word, but how, how fluid do you feel that your reviews are situated between this kind of more essayistic freedom of anything can go and I can say, use this really beautiful language that versus, you know, the kind of, I think I guess that's always kind of the struggle to, you know, have beauty and clarity mm-hmm. unite. But yeah, where do, I don't know, maybe there's a question somewhere in there. How, how much do you let yourself, you know, be, perhaps a lyricist when you're writing your reviews, or does that feel like it really needs to sit at bay while you get the point across? Oh, um, for me, I, I think there's so many good points and questions you both raised, uh, all three of you raised. I guess for me, um, there's a question, and I think this applies to the creative practice, but also to reviewing, which is one of discovery. Mm-hmm. and. I, I think that's important to mention because I find that when I'm writing a review, I actually start to figure out what I'm thinking, not just yeah. about the review, but about my obsessions, say. Mm-hmm. And so um, it'd be weird to cut that out. You mm-hmm. know, it'd be weird to kind of not talk about one's discovery. And maybe that's, I don't know where that fits on our discussion about evaluation and, and impersonality, all these kinds of things. But uh, two cases in point, I wouldn't have written a book called The Grey Album, which is about black culture and music and, and literature and its sort of connectivity across time, had I not written a few reviews and mm. re-evaluations of writers like Langston Hughes. Or, mm. um, and they helped me when I was writing them to figure out, oh, I think this. You know, mm. I think that sometimes in a poem you're not saying it you were rejecting something. There was something in what I call poetics of refusal that was important for me to understand. And by sort of trying that out in a, a form and also uh, sometimes in, you know, like you gotta finish this for a newspaper and it, you know, it teaches you something about craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I, I guess that's the, the question I, I think that it's kind of coming up for me, which is what is, about the critic, him or herself or their self, you know, what do they learn? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that sense of discovery, if you do it right, also transmits to the reader. The other part I'd say about that has to do with, that maybe it's a bit of the corrective, but a bit of also kind of that cultural context. I remember, this isn't poetry, but I did Paul Beatty's The Sellout for the New York Times. And I remember saying, you know, I think there was a kind of sense that Black satire, he invented it, you know? And I was like, um, here's slavery's satire, you know, talk about the cakewalk, which was a d- dance that the enslaved did to mock uh, the master's uh, ballroom dances that then became a craze, one of the first dance crazes in the States. And so how do you talk about that? And it, for me, it was like, a paragraph of, by the way, this didn't begin yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be really helpful and, you know, that wasn't a discovery for me, but I was trying to help others discover this long tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I would say, uh, uh, last thing, is what you said about sort of changing the ranks of editorial. I think that's happened in the States maybe a little bit mm-hmm. earlier, and you just saw if you saw the Times, I think it's last week, the New York Times Magazine cover story was about black mm-hmm. publishing and yeah, how black yeah. publishing had changed, or black folks had uh, made their way into publishing in uh, a broader sense. And I think that's a fascinating, important story. Lisa Lucas, who you may know, ran the National uh, Book Foundation and I think is doing a great job. How do we kind of coalesce some of this uh, need that when you read that story, it's almost a double story about 
what's happening now, but also the people who went before and broke ground and who didn't always get the kind of support needed. And so, you know, if it's only Toni Morrison <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. publishing into, you know, publishing the black book, and, you know, that's not about criticism, it's about sales, but it also tells a story that I think I knew, but I don't think everyone knew, and that is really necessary. Um, to talk about the, you know, how the changing ranks can affect the literature we read. We can't imagine uh, a literature without Morrison or the people she discovered, Tony Cade Bambara among them, um, though now that literature is often being banned in the States. So okay. we're in a perilous moment that I think all of these things, editorial, criticism, discovery, so crucial. Gosh, yeah, the multiple waves of stupidity recounted in that article where financial... I'm sorry, I want, I want yeah. just a meme of that, the ultimate. <laughs> Finances were being used as a smokescreen for all sorts of ulterior reasons to yeah. ditch generations of black editors just as they got into post. Yeah, tragic stuff. Um, I feel like we need to open up yeah, to the floor. For, I First, I'm still not sure we've quite circled round enough to the question of value. I mean, maybe we should come back to this, but yeah, did anyone want to ask a question or redirect? Or, or, or comment or yeah. expand on anything? We have critics in the room. We have serial anthologists in the room. <laughs> well, we had a comment from the online um, oh, yeah. uh, audience. Um, Shash, Shash conscious that um, we, we needed to try not to be amnesic about the generations of, um, you know, uh, strugglers and poets and critics of colour that had gone before us. Mm. Um, I think it was a conversation with uh, Bernadine Evaristo when mm. she came to speak to our critics that really brought that into focus for us. That as Kevin was saying, you know, writing these histories of mm. um, the Dark Room Collective, Carvey Carnum, like that. There's a risk that with these initiatives that we, you know, erase what's gone before if we don't mm -hmm. remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's an absence, and I guess in the way there isn't in the U.S. because of the relationship between well academia and, and 
sort of poetry, which is different in the US than it is in the UK, that those histories have yet to be written to an extent yeah. here, um, mm -hmm. or are less prominent, and, and I think it's right, the US is, is ahead of us in that way, and the, the, yeah, the canonization, the enshrinement, the, the work around African-American literature, we don't have in the same way around black British literature, perhaps, yet, but in terms of, yeah, that has to do with academic, hmm. the academic world as well, and how it's different. But let's be clear, they, a lot of these hires that in this are from 2020 on, you know, they're not, yeah. that's two years ago. So yeah. they, it isn't like this is um, a long time, it's a long time coming, but it isn't necessarily a long time in action. Mm -hmm. um, I think obviously, uh, you know, and even Elliot, who we, we mentioned earlier, I mean, you're looking back in order to talk about now, and an anthology has to talk about necessarily is about the moment it's being made in some way. Um, you try to, I think, transcend it just like uh, if you're writing, you're trying to transcend your one moment or the moment you're writing about. Um, for me, doing a, an African-American poetry anthology, I had the luxury of what seems like a lot of thousand pages, but as I say in the introduction, it could have been twice as long. It could have, um, I'm, I'm not sure you could from now on, do one volume of African-American poetry. It was really bursting at the seams for me. And, you know, it, the hardest thing was cutting, you know, Langston Hughes to 20 pages. But at the same time, it's like, well, I need some pages for folks who are just writing right now. Um, I need to, and, you know, there was a moment, it was like, should we end it? Uh, in 2010 or something, and I was like, that would be disastrous. Mm. We would, A, we would be, you know, people would be like, what you mean, you, uh, you know, you cut it right up before I, I publish my book. But also, um, you would lose a kind of the, the and, and this I would say is a, a long time coming, but has already happened, is the flowering of black poetry more recently. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's always a balancing act, and I, I only think that by be making the, ancestral parts as strong as possible, you, you honor the recent parts and likewise, mm -hmm. uh, the, vice versa, by, by sort of saying, this isn't out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And you know, in that anthology specifically, I was trying to understand the radical uh, tradition in all senses, both experimental and uh, political, sometimes quite united. Um, you read really Baraka, formally innovative and politically, Sanchez, um, June Jordan, all the black arts poets, I think, were really interested in what June Jordan called vertical rhythm. But then also you have, I think, uh, you know, understanding things that were kind of silent in uh, black culture, whether it's, you know, queerness or uh, LGBTQ, kind of considerations, women, I was really uh, wanting to um, have gender diversity, all those kinds of questions I think face us um, and are there for, that's exciting to me. That's part of the pleasure is saying, oh, you know, there's this poet, May Cowdery, you know, her book is hard to find even in, you know, I was in one of the best libraries in the world, the Schomburg Center, and they didn't have a copy, you know. Um, so my job is to make it easy for you the reader to mm -hmm. see into that archive, mm -hmm. to peer into what's there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, this is the last thing I'll say, um, sometimes people say, oh, someone was discovered in the archive. Uh, of course the archive is there always. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think the job is to kind of, is it uncover, share, kind of bring out of the archive. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, sometimes that is exactly what explains why such and so poet right now makes the most sense.
Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Now it's up to 12, 14. 16. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing. Uh, we shouldn't uh, not celebrate. The other thing that came on from that was then the Complete Works mentoring scheme, which Sarah mm. yep. And Will. Yep. And Will, yeah. Yep. Awesome share, and so on. Yep. And that had three, um, three tranches of 10 poets each, 30 poets altogether. And I think in that mentoring process that went on with those poets, it focused their attention on practice and on criticism, and they were finding in that process of, of discovery that there weren't the, uh, the, the essays, the critical books and so on, mm -hmm. that really made sense to uh, help them make sense of what they were trying to do as a person of colour in this country. Um, and now uh, another development from that, which you won't know about yet, but I'll tell you now, uh, mm -hmm. Natalie Teitler and Karen McCarthy-Wolf are editing an anthology called Mapping the Future, coming out next year, which will have poems by the poets from Complete Works, but also 10 extended essays on poets by poets of colour mm -hmm. from that group, which, which I think will be quite uh, ground-changing, because that's, that's been a gap. Mm. And so I, I think that whole process of bringing those poets together, the interchanges between those poets and the elder poets who were their mentors, I think, been enormously important. Mm. And that that's going to lead to other things. And one of the other interesting things that had another spin-off was Roger Robinson, now publishing these online provocations using social media, where he just puts out a statement. It's not necessarily about Roger Colour, just all kinds of aspects of practice. Where I think that might be something that a lot of those poets will take forward because they engage in, engage in those provocations. And mm. I think that's something else that's mm. worth thinking about. Mm. And just to finally add, uh, Shasta Trevett, who made that comment, has edited an, uh, editing an anthology with um, Vidya Ravindra and Senis called Out of Sri Lanka, which is also coming out next year. Mm. So that will then open out a lot of the yeah. Sri Lankan poets of mm. the diaspora as well mm -hmm. as those who. Yeah. 
And two of, two of them are going to be doing an event next weekend. Mm. If you're here. No, <laughs> not another year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. No, no, thank you, Neil. It's, it's, yeah, I should have mentioned uh, quite a few of those things. And certainly the Complete Works um, and the Freeverse Report were templates for us, for Ledbury. Um, and, and actually, we had occasion to reread your stanza yes. uh, address as well. Yeah. Um, Not the well, yes. In fact, I think it's marked. It's yeah, the redaction. It yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I th was there a response to that lecture as well? I think, no, just published. The, the legal okay. Okay. <laughs> well, and, and and great that that had the effect that it had on the Guardian. Um, unfortunately, they don't seem so receptive to that now. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's another question really is the kind of work that we're all doing in our own ways. You know, how how much pressure can we put? on these sorts of institutions and, and particularly newspapers uh, to make those changes. At what point does you know, culture become immovable or, um, yeah. But this point about the collected volume of essays mm. and criticism, I mean, we still have sort of medium to long-term aspirations to, to put together a similar sort of endeavor. And I think there should be many versions mm. of this volume um, that sort of takes the thinking to the next stage from mm. the assorted miscellaneous um, reviews. I, I guess there's an there's a interesting question here around that many of us on the complete works, because of this phenomenon we've been sort of glancing at in this panel, that, that the States is that further along, mm -hmm. maybe ahead, maybe not ahead, um, uh, that th 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 we were looking to, you know, poets of colour in the US, but there is still a criticism to be written that uh, takes on the distinctness of um, mm. these currents in the UK. Yeah. yeah. And what's um, interesting, actually, is that quite a lot of the work that's been done on black British poetry is by academics in the US. And so whilst that's, you know, that's wonderful that that work has been done by some really you know, great critics in the US, there's also a, an interesting lag in what their understanding is, perhaps, of what's happening on the ground. So for the, you know, for the writers that you're, you're talking about, it, you can't really look to those books to get a sense of what's happening in a place that you were experiencing it. So it needs to be done here, too. Forrest, you had a question. Just a naive question that's connected to what you were just talking about. Um, so the, the studies in the U.S. show that the interest in poetry and poetry readership has shot up moderately in the last 20 years. Um, and why is it that that has corresponded with a reduction in the amount of poetry being reviewed? But the LA Times doesn't review poetry anymore. The New York Times reviews very, very little. And usually it's just these little blips. The Guardian has dropped it. Um, That's not a naive question at all. It's a very good one. I mean, yeah. should we be looking at podcasts and? Yeah, you know? I mean, I, I think it. Yeah, and, and I think it was, it was it the National Endowment of the Arts or the National Endowment of the Humanities did that research that really I think had there was like a graph and there was a spike and it was like 2015 or something. It was around the time Claudia Rankin's book came out that that's when poetry reading and, and and I think they even drilled down into the numbers and in the U.S. and it was people of color who were driving that. Right who are driving that spike in, in read it, readership. And the same thing happens here. And, and The Guardian used to do, I think, for a few years. This, Rupi this, Sorry, this, Rupi, Rupi, Rupi Kaur too, yeah. yeah um, at, the, at the same time. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, those, those articles are like, poetry is being read more than ever. And then, of course, it would have no effect on their books coverage. Um, 
But I don't know if we can see those things as, as having a natural effect on each other. Um, they're almost like two separate phenomena that are happening. And I guess social media is um, you know, one way in which um, people are learning about books and, and you know, re receiving that kind of information of what to look to next, as opposed to reading traditional forms of poetry reviewing, especially if it's younger people. They wouldn't necessarily be the target readerships for those kinds of spaces. But it's a good question. Does anybody else have anything to add to that? I've been thinking a little bit of, while we're talking the past few minutes about audience, mm -hmm. and I, I think there's always, uh, from the publishing uh, world to um, reviewing to Forrest's question, this notion that there isn't an audience. Um, and I think that sometimes, um, well, I think that's a lie, but I also think that there's, and Ledbury uh, is one example of that's not true, but I also think that there's, um, a constant proving of this, there is this audience and then a kind of, not it being the right audience somehow or, or it not um, wanting to make that stick or, uh, you know, and, and I, I find that really worrisome. And I run a museum uh, on the side and- um, A very the, big museum. <laughs> uh, one of the things we found is that, you know, when we open, I think it's something like 30% of the people who came to the National Museum of African American History and Culture had never been to a museum before. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's their fault. I think that's museum's fault. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was proof positive to me that if you built the thing and met people where they lived and told mm -hmm. a story that perhaps hadn't been told in the same way or fully or as, as respectfully or as differently, that people would come to that you know, and, and see it. And I think that's a little true in poetry. Perhaps some of the limits that people had put on what a poem was um, and what, who could write it uh, affected how we see poetry and what, you know, where its relevance, let's say. And I, I, the last thing I'll say is just, I think being at The New Yorker, I saw very much in 2020 with sort of the twin pandemics of racism and COVID, the ways that people were dying to write about these things, that poetry was what they were turning to, um, and that what they were turning to both as poets but as readers. And um, there was a kind of way in which uh, some poets were woefully unprepared for the moment when they had to write about right now. And I think that's a problem uh, that you know, I, I think thinks about not just audience but one's own practice and how you know, black poets, for instance, had been writing about politics and, and the moment and, and didn't have the luxury of saying, I'm not gonna write about the kid shot down the street. Um, so there was a way in which I think um, our criticism has to be equally prepared to think about the moment, but think about the breadth of poetry. Has mm. to not just uh, you know, respond to a, a book, but also think about audiences in the broadest mm. sense and, and create audience as well as just cater to an audience, and I think that's the moment we're in. Is is all these arguments are one thing, but really, how do we talk about you know this moment? How do we capture what it's actually like to be breathing when your breath can be taken away in one minute? And I, I think that the poets and the critics who are talking about that are the ones I want to turn to, um, and not just in this moment, but over time. But where are creating an audience is the newspapers are publishing. I mean, I think you're asking a literal question. Um, I think sometimes in journals, sometimes in the pages of, or on Poetry Foundation's website, or on this, on Twitter, or on these these other places <laughs> that, uh, you know, podcast is a great uh, notion, but mm -hmm. I, I think that's, 
that I think a little bit has yet to be determined, but also I see lots of seeds being planted. Yeah, I mean, I think in the UK on a practical level, it, it, um, with the diminishing of newspaper space in places like the New Statesman now not running poetry reviews at all, um, it is poetry magazines have increased there. So I think over time, the data that has been amassed by Dave Coates is actually not showing a reduction in overall articles or pieces being written, reviewing. Um, it's just where they are appearing. So it, and the Guardian is obviously a very uh, vis you know, visible place for a poetry review to appear, but if the audience for poetry reviews often is you know, going to be people who are either poets or kind of uh, poetry aficionados, and it's a small category, then in a sense, they're, they're just as likely to go to poetry review, perhaps, as they would be to read a review of a poetry book in The Guardian or elsewhere, um, or be moved by it. I think the other interesting part of that was, I mean, obviously there's a budgetary concern, which is what we, we bring in lots of editors um, to speak to the critics, and I think have hit all of the major editors, really, and they all say the same thing, which is, that when books, pages, budgets diminish as they have, that poetry is the first thing to go and any other kind of, you know, supposedly kind of elite or niche art forms. Um, and that's how we feel about it here. So fiction's not gonna go, nonfiction's not gonna go. Those will be retained and they have long form reviews still, longish. Um, but the poetry roundup is there as a kind of nod to the fact that poetry exists. Uh, and that's the New York Times now, their, their format too. Um, but what the, the trouble with it is it, what, you, what is produced in those sort of, you know, 800, but four books and 200 words each is that it becomes a, a recycling of, of back matter, um, you know, and, and kind of publishing copy, publicity copy, um, that then gets funneled through the critic's mind in, in, a, in a not very interesting way. And then the critic then becomes the blurb, you know, the quote for the next book and the next public. So this sort of PR machine, is also an interesting way of thinking about how it's affecting reviewing, um, and then alongside that prize culture and how prize culture has shifted and changed and perhaps become more important or the site for diversity in the UK um, as almost a kind of replacement for real critical engagement. Um, and how, how can criticism, this is a question that we can't ask throughout of time, and also it's too big of a question, but how can criticism mitigate some of the effects of price culture and the ways in which visibility of books um, is leading to audiences and readerships, widening readerships, but not necessarily a deep engagement with their being situated in a kind of historical or aesthetic conversation. Mm, but actually also what the editors have described to us is this sort of shift away from the review to the interview with the poet yeah. as um, yeah. a sort of lifestyle piece, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Which of course comes with a particular kind of story or autobiography hook that, mm. that compounds these issues of looking at the life of the poet and okay. yeah. Okay, I think we need to wrap up. Yeah, we need to wrap up, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.